Today's Bible reading is from Jonah chapter 3. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. Go to the great city of Nineveh and proclaim to it the message I give you. Jonah obeyed the word of the Lord and went to Nineveh. Now Nineveh was a very large city. It took three days to go through it. Jonah began by going a day's journey into the city, proclaiming, 40 more days and Nineveh will be overthrown. The Ninevites believed God. A fast was proclaimed and all of them, from the greatest to the least, put on sackcloth. When Jonah's warning reached the king of Nineveh, he rose from his throne, took off his royal robes, covered himself with sackcloth and sat down in the dust. This is the proclamation he issued in Nineveh. By the decree of the king and his nobles, do not let people or animals, herds or flocks taste anything. Do not let them eat or drink. But let people and animals be covered with sackcloth. Let everyone call urgently on God. Let them give up their evil ways and their violence. Who knows, God may yet relent and with compassion turn from his fierce anger so that we will not perish. When God saw what they did and how they turned from their evil ways, he relented and did not bring on them the destruction he had threatened. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Our second Bible reading today comes from the book of John from chapter 1, verses 1 to 14. John chapter 1 from verse 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that has been made. In him was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God, whose name was John. He came as a witness to testify concerning that light, so that through him all might believe. He himself was not the light. He came only as a witness to the light. The true light that gives light to everyone was coming into the world. He was in the world, and though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. He came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. Yet to all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become of God. Children born not of natural descent, nor of human decision or husband's will, but born of God. The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only son who came from the father, full of grace and truth. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, this morning we're uh, gonna spend some time looking at that reading which Karina brought us uh, from Jonah chapter three, uh, particularly as we continue our series in this Old Testament book of Jonah. As, I said, I've, as I've said to people, it's a story that's well known, uh, but it's got lots of detail in it actually. And as we get to the end of this story, we're gonna see things that might have surprised us that don't actually follow the plot line of the Sunday school teaching that we might have encountered many years ago, or even just the pop culture references to this story. Now, before we do that, I've got a little activity for us to do. Perhaps you're feeling a bit lethargic this morning 
And so I want you to participate at home in your households. If you're alone, that's okay. You can still yell it out loudly. Your neighbors will be wondering what you're yelling. There's a game that they play on the Ellen Show called Epic or Fail. You might have seen it. She plays a clip or she shows a picture and, and it's stopped at a point when you're not sure what will happen next. What's the next moment in history gonna take place? And you have to guess. There are often moments which you don't know very well. And so you have to decide, is this gonna be an epic moment or is this gonna be a fail moment? And uh, we're gonna play that game now. I've got a few pictures and let's see what your knowledge of history, some of it recent, some of it a little older is. And uh, we're gonna put a picture up, I'm gonna ask you a question. So here's the first one. Oh, there we go. Ah, now, here's, here's a, a more recent moment in political history. Now, is this gonna, this is, this is uh, the leader of then opposition, Bill Shorten, about to cast his vote. Is this gonna result in an epic or a fail moment? Cast your votes. That's right, it's a fail moment. Now. Don't read anything into this in terms of my political inclinations. I'm solely just picking up moments in history. Here's another picture for us. Here's another question. Okay. Ah, I'm not going to give you any clues. Some of you will know immediately what this is. If you're a bit older, if you're a bit younger, you might not. Is this an epic or fail? Cast your vote. Cast your vote. Here we go. Ready? An epic moment. Stephen Bradbury managed to stay on his feet when everyone else fell over and won only Australia's second gold medal at the Winter Olympics. Here's another opportunity. Okay. Oh, now you're really going back in the archives here. Is this an epic or fail moment? Cast your vote in household. Everyone called it out. Think thumbs up, thumbs down. A fail. This is the 1994 World Cup. Roberto Baggio is about to take a penalty shot to win the World Cup. And he missed. He hit it over the crossbar. They lost the World Cup final. Okay, I've got another one for us. This is the last one. Okay, is this going to be an epic or fail moment? Call it out at home, vote with your thumbs, thumbs up, thumbs down. This is an epic moment, wasn't it? And uh, I, I, that last one is a, is a reminder for us sometimes. I don't know how you went with your little quiz, who the winner was. You can toast to their success at the end of the sermon. Uh, but, but each of those moments reminds us that, especially those epic moments, that maybe it's the Stephen Bradbury story or it's the, it's the final one uh, with Britain's Got Talent. E each of Susan Boyle, each of those moments reminds us that we just, we love those epic moments when a person appears to be on track to fail, on track to fail, and then something just turns around. That Susan Boyle moment, she turns up at the audition, she looks a bit harassed and straggled, and yet she's got a voice of an angel. She becomes a superstar, a multimillionaire. She sells millions and millions of albums. And we love that story because there's romance to a turnaround, isn't there? There's romance when someone who seems on track to disaster and failure ends up a great success. Why do I raise that? Because in a sense, there is a romance to the story of Jonah which is starting to emerge in chapter 3 when characters who appear to be on track to disaster turn it all around. Jonah himself, who appears to have been on track to failure, turns it around. And the Ninevites, on track to failure and disaster, turn it around. And in a sense, that's part of the beauty of this story, about a chance to turn things around. But as I've said throughout throughout this series, what I actually want us to realise is that the book of Jonah is not really about the human characters, as fascinating and engaging and full as they are in the story. 
The story is not primarily about Jonah or even the king of Nineveh. The story is about God. And so the question we're going to keep asking ourselves here is what does it what, do, what is it about God that we're being taught about God's character? Now, one of the key sections of this passage is in Jonah chapter 3, verses 4 to 6, and you'll see that come up on your screen here. These are key verses in the book. It says, Jonah began by going a day's journey into the city, proclaiming 40 more days and Nineveh will be overthrown. And the Ninevites believed God. A fast was proclaimed, and all of them, from the greatest to the least, put on sackcloth. When Jonah's warning reached the king of, the, of Nineveh, he rose from his throne, took off his royal robes, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat down in the dust. Now, the, it, those are some of the most important verses in this chapter, and they teach us a lot about God. But interesting, actually, they teach us that not so much about God, per se, but his message, this idea of the word of God. Now, if you're not a Christian, you would still probably know that Christians are quite obsessed with the Bible. They're people of the book. Uh, they might even use, they might even talk about this concept of the gospel, this message. They're, they're, all about, they're all about words and the message. If you're a Christian or if you come to church, we talk about the gospel often. We talk about the word. And one of the things I want us to think about here as we reflect on Jonah chapter 3 this morning is not just who is God, but the nature of his word, of his message, because that's one of the things that Jonah chapter 3 is actually helping us to understand. I want to understand what it means to encounter this word, what it means to respond to this word, and to, to really taste it. Now, if you're, if you're a note taker, those are probably three great headings for you to follow. Uh, encountering God and his word, responding to God and his word, and really tasting God. What does it mean to taste it? One of the things we see when it comes to encountering God's word in this in this chapter is that to encounter God's word is actually to encounter God. You'll notice that they said Jonah sp speaks to them and what do they say? They believed not God, you'll notice, but they believed, sorry, not Jonah, but they believed God. Uh, that's interesting, isn't it? Because it's of course Jonah who is speaking to them at that very point in time, but even for the Ninevites, as they hear this message, they don't hear it just as a message from a person, from a man, from a prophet, from a Hebrew. They hear it as a message from God himself. They don't discern a difference between the message and, and the ultimate giver of the message, who is God. It's not that God has somehow taken over Jonah's body, but they see, when they, they hear, when they hear that message, they are hearing God himself speak to them. But the other thing that's interesting is, you notice when the message reaches the king, how the writer describes it? He says, when Jonah's warning reached the king. Now, the Hebrew word for reached there, if you're not aware, the Old Testament was written in Hebrew originally. And so in Hebrew, that word reached is actually uh, multifaceted. It could actually mean touched the king. That what the Hebrew writer is trying to convey is when the message comes to the king, it impacts him, it touches him, it does something to him. Now, you might think, how, how does a message touch someone? But we have, we have ways of capturing this in our, own, in our own vernacular. When someone speaks to you and says something powerful, you say, oh, that really impacted me, that, that changed me, that, that challenged me. The word, that message, is, is bringing about a change in us. And that is what the Bible is trying to signify about God's word. That when we hear God's message, it is God himself speaking to us. 
And when he speaks to us, he's, he's touching us, he's impacting us. He's bringing about some kind of change in us. This word is active, it's effective. It's not just an idea or a concept for us to mull upon. It's a truth that brings about a change in us. Now, this idea of the word being active and bringing about a change is seen throughout the Bible and starts from the very first chapter of the Bible in Genesis chapter 1. When, when the Bible describes creation, you know, the Bible's understanding of creation is so different to any other, any other religious view. Creation comes about because God speaks it into being. When God's, God says, I'm going to create the world, he's not declaring an intention, which he later brings about. He speaks and it happens at that very time. His words are so powerful, they just make things be, so to speak. Now, how do you, how do you get your head around this? Well, C.S. Lewis, the author of the Chronicles of Narnia, writes in The Magician's Nephew about Aslan, his kind of analogous god character, creating a world. And as he describes it, we get a bit of a sense of, of what it might have been like for God to speak the world into being in the first place. I'm going to read a little excerpt from that part of the story. Uh, maybe you've heard it before. If you haven't, that's okay. Just, just listen along. You might close your eyes and let your imagination take hold as C.S. Lewis describes Aslan creating his little world. And that might give you a bit of an insight about the power of God's word to bring about things. Here's what Lewis writes. The lion was pacing to and fro about that empty land and singing his new song. It was softer and more lilting than the song by which he had called up the stars and the sun, a gentle rippling music. And as he walked and sang, the valley grew green with grass. It spread out from the lion like a pool. It ran up the sides of the little hills like a wave. In a few minutes, it was creeping up the lower slopes of the distant mountains, making that young world every moment softer. The light wind could now be heard ruffling the grass. Soon there were other things beside grass. The higher slopes drew dark, grew dark with heather. Patches of rougher and more bristling green appeared in the valley. See, what Lewis is describing there is this lion singing, and as, as the sound of his song travels out, it's bringing about new things. And that's, that's what the Bible is trying to describe about the power of God's message. As people hear it, as it encounters people, as it reaches people, it brings about a change. Uh, the, the prophet Isaiah, an Old Testament prophet, wrote this about God's word, which reinforces this. He said, as the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return to it without watering the earth and making it bud and flourish so that it yields seed for the sower and bread for the eater, so is my word that goes out from my mouth. It will not return to me empty, but will accomplish what I desire and achieve the purpose for which I sent it. See, the Bible, the Bible is very committed to this position that when God speaks, he will bring about change. His word is so powerful. It's, his word is not just him saying that he will do something in future, necessarily. It is bringing about a new reality. It is changing. It is impacting people. It is impacting the world. It is transforming the world. Now, one of the reasons we find this hard is that when we encounter words, people saying something and then doing something, there's always a gap between them. Sometimes the gap between what someone says and what they do is completely unintentional. So they'll say, I'm, 
you might be, have been a child, for example, and, and as a child, your mother or father said, I'll pick you up at the school gate at 3.30, but the traffic or the meeting ran late, and they got there and picked you up at 4 o'clock. And so we start to Im, 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 embody this kind of life where we see a gap between what someone says and what they do. You know, they say, I love you. I'll commit to you for the rest of my life. I'll, uh, I promise to honour and obey everything you say. I promise to give my life to you. I promise in sickness and in health. And then life changes and they don't do it anymore. Now, that's just the sad reality of the world that we live in that each of us has a gap between what we say and what we do, sometimes unintentionally and sometimes intentionally so. And of course, the challenge for all of that is that when, when we think of someone speaking something, words don't ca carry the same authority and reliability. We can't be certain that what someone says is what they are doing and what they intend to do. But when God speaks, there is no gap. And the Bible holds to this idea consistently throughout and Jonah chapter 3 is an example of the power of God's word what it looks like to encounter this word is to encounter a living and active truth that brings about change now the question that then returns to us is how do you respond to the word if it is like this and so this is the second question that we have to ask ourselves how do we respond and we learn a lot about how to respond to God's word by looking at the characters in this story. Uh, Jonah and the king of Nineveh. Now Jonah, Jonah has the word come to him again, we hear. And this time, you'll notice, he obeys what the Lord does. He, he does what he probably should have done in chapter 1. He goes and he does God's work. And in Jonah, we see a person who has been willing to set aside uh, his own immediate inclination and desires and do what God says. There's a humbling moment for Jonah to say, yes, I'm going to obey you, God. I'm going to follow what you've asked me to do. So Jonah's an example of how to respond. But I think the best example we see of how to respond to God's word is seen actually in the king of Nineveh. Do you see what happens with the king of Nineveh? This is a great city. This is the greatest city at the time of the Jonah story, uh, encountering this powerful word of God. And he says in verse 6, the king says, he, he rose from his throne, took off his royal robes, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat down in the dust. That is such a beautiful picture, a clear picture of what it looks like to respond to God's message. It is to get off your throne, to take off your royal robes, to take off all your pretensions of authority, and uh, self-sufficiency to put on sackcloth and ashes to humble yourself what an extraordinary step that must have been for those around to watch this king effectively the most powerful political leader in the world at the time hear a message and respond like that stepping down his throne in effect pushing aside all his power all his authority and humbling himself, dressing himself like the poorest of the poor in response to this message. That's what it looks like to respond to God's word to us. When God speaks, our first response is a response of humility, of humbling ourselves. Now, here's the challenge. For some of us, uh, that, that immediately is something that we find difficult to do. We, we find it very hard to respond 
that way to the message of the Bible. It feels archaic, it feels old, it feels unreliable, it's been used by people the wrong way. Uh, and for, for those of us, this is a very challenging word to us, to say that we're, we're meant to sit underneath this word rather than over it. But for some of us who come to church regularly, uh, when we can, of course, uh, for some of us who come to church regularly and sit in the pews and go through a church service, we can kid ourselves that we have submitted to the word. But the reality is deep down, actually, the word remains under us rather than us under the word. There are little parts of God's word which challenge us, and if we reflect on them, we actually find very hard to put into practice. Let me give you an example. In Matthew 6, 24, Jesus says, it's part of the Sermon on the Mount, he's talking about wealth and possessions and material things. He says you cannot worship God and money. Now, this sermon's not about money and it's not about wealth and possessions, so to speak, but we live in one of the most wealthy parts of the world, not just the wealthiest part in Sydney, but in the world, uh, the lower North Shore. And so wealth and possessions is always a good place to start when we think about our our ability to submit to God's word. And for many of us, we might come to church on a Sunday and say that we submit to God's word, but most of our week is spent trying to build a financial base, some kind of financial security, trying to build our wealth portfolio, trying to climb our professional ladder, material ambitions, professional ambitions. But think about what Jesus is saying in Matthew 6, 24. He says, you cannot worship God and money. Now, for most of us, what we think is, no, I, I want to worship God, but can't I also devote myself to building a financially secure future? But the Bible says, no, you can't, you can't choose both. You can only choose one. You can only choose one. And if we look back on our weeks and our months, our planning and our priorities, what we come to realise is that often, actually, we've been choosing our wealth, our material security, our financial security over and above our commitment to the Lord at times. We've said we're worshipping the Lord, but we're also worshipping this other thing. And yet Jesus says, you cannot serve God and money. It's one or the other. Now, why do I bring this to you? Because I think for us, it's not enough to just say we submit to God's word and his message. We, it has to have a functional reality. It has to materialise in our lives. It has to shape our priorities. It has to change our decisions. It has to impact the way that we parent our children and we form our families. It has to flow into our decisions about time. It has to shape our interactions with people and our relationships. To say that we submit to God's word is to step down from our throne to take off our royal robes, to cover ourselves in sackcloth and ashes, to be shaped by humility. Timothy Ward, an author, has this great quote. He says, Our basic attitude to scripture should be humility. We should submit our thoughts, hopes and desires to God's thoughts and his will. Now, what I love about that quote is just that last little section. It's not just our thoughts, you see, that we need to submit to God's thoughts and wills. It's our hopes and our desires as well. You know, some of us have an intellectual acceptance of our Christian faith, but it hasn't flowed through into the things that we deeply hope for and deeply desire in our life. And yet to sit under God's word, to allow it to be this powerful 
impacting thing, to acknowledge that that is what it really is, is for that word to shape not just our thoughts, not just our ideas, but to shape our hopes and our desires, the very things that we long for. Now, some of you are listening. The more I've, more I've drilled down in this, the less inclined you are to respond this way to God's word, the less inclined you are even to agree with the way that the Bible talks about its message. What's the key there? What's the key? Well, the key is not just to encounter this message. Many of, many of us encounter it. We come to church or you've tripped across us on Facebook this morning, you're listening to the feed. Uh, it's, it's not even to know how to respond. It's to taste this word, to, to, to drink it in, to feel the fullness of it to devour it, for it to be the thing that you draw sustenance about. How do you do that? Well, at the heart of this word is God's character, and it is coming to realise the beauty of what God's message is really conveying. It's conveying who God is and what God is about. The thing that strikes us most about this story is God's response to both Jonah and the king of Nineveh. You know, there's a, there's, there's a great moment in the story where it says, the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. Oh, what a blessed phrase, a second time. That's, that phrase is the heart of the gospel. You see, Jonah, for Jonah, he was disobedient. Even if his obedience was delayed, that's still a form of disobedience. But God in his kindness comes to Jonah a second time. He doesn't write him off immediately. He gives him a second opportunity to follow his command. And that's an insight into the way that God treats us. But even more so, the king of Nineveh. You know, as I said, the king of Nineveh was the most powerful political figure of his time. But the reality is also one of the cruelest figures of his time. And he was overtly against the God of the Hebrews. Overtly against them. In fact, he'd spent much of his time trying to destroy the nation of Israel. It was all about colonization. And yet here, as soon as he turns back to the Lord, as soon as he repents, as soon as he shows a moment of humility, the Lord is willing to accept them back, to give them a second chance as well. And there is a profound truth at the heart of that. You know, when I was at uh, university, soon after September 11, uh, when al-Qaeda terrorists flew planes into the Twin Towers, uh, Osama bin Laden was the most hated person on the planet. Uh, he was, I guess, the modern version at the time of Hitler, uh, certainly in the Western world. Many people viewed him as, as just egregiously evil. The images of people dying in the Twin Towers were seared into their brains, and he was directly responsible for those moments. Around that time, an ad company launched, launched a campaign to advertise churches and they said that Jesus loves Osama. Now of course there's always weaknesses with ad campaigns that are based around one sentence they don't capture all the nuances, the theological realities, the need for repentance but what it was trying to uh, capture was the extraordinary scope of God's mercy and grace to people that there is a capacity in the gospel for God to love even someone as evil as Osama bin Laden. Now what was amazing was the response to this line this is before social media, but this ad campaign went viral and in a negative way. Many people were very upset with this, this ad campaign and particularly this idea that Jesus 
could in any way, shape or form, love someone like Osama bin Laden. When we encounter the king of Nineveh in Jonah chapter 3, we're encountering someone at the same level of evil. And yet what we see here is God's capacity to forgive is greater than our capacity to sin. God's capacity to forgive is greater than our capacity to sin. You know, God has the ability to forgive even the king of Nineveh. Even the king of Nineveh. Such is his capacity to show mercy and kindness to people. And that's at the heart of the gospel. And that, that's, that's a truth that starts to see its, its, its genesis early in the, Old, in the Old Testament and through stories like Jonah, but it comes to its fullness in Jesus Christ. You, would have, you might have noticed that in the reading which Nina brought to us in John chapter 1, Jesus is described as the word of God, the word himself. And one of the reasons he's described as the word is because in Jesus we see why this truth that God is able to forgive anyone is not just, is not just rhetoric, but is truth itself. There is no gap, you see, in Jesus Christ. When God says, I'm willing to forgive you, in Jesus Christ he proves it. He proves that his word is true. And there is no gap between what he has said and what he will do. You see, in the gospel we see that when God declares his willingness to forgive, he is already achieving it. There's a moment right at the end of Jesus, the story of Jesus' life. He's just been taken to the cross. He's been scourged within uh, an inch of his life. He's been deserted by all of his closest followers, except for a couple of women who stand at the foot of the cross. And he's being mocked by the crowd after just a week ago being hailed as the new king. An extraordinary turnaround. His life is at its absolute low point. And if all of that isn't enough, he's experiencing the spiritual alienation of his father, abandoning him to judgment and death. And what does Jesus say as he looks around at that crowd? Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they're doing. Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they're doing. That is, that is an extraordinary statement of forgiveness, isn't it? That is forgiveness which goes beyond a person's capacity to sin. And here's the thing, that is not just a statement. That is not just a word. That is a truth that is being enacted right in that moment. See, because as Jesus says, Father, forgive them, he is dying for their sins on the cross so that they can be forgiven. And as he says, Father, forgive them, he's not just saying it to that crowd, he's saying it for you and I as well. And the reason we can believe those words and know that God's mercy and his grace to the rebel, to the most rebellious of rebels, is real and true and available is because Jesus Christ says it and is enacting it at the very same moment, giving his life on the cross for you and I. Over and over, the message of the Bible is this, that God's grace, his capacity to forgive, is greater than our capacity to sin. And that is extraordinary news. That's the kind of message, you know, as you meditate upon it, as you draw upon it, as you fill your heart with it, as you devour it, as it goes deep within you, as you take it as a word to you, will change you. It will reach you. It will touch you. It will impact you. It will humble you. 
and it will lift you up. That's the power of God's message. It's a message which reminds us of who we really are, sinners, but it's also a message which fills us with joy as who God is making us to be, his children, and it fills us with thanksgiving. Now, as we finish today, uh, we've been doing this each week for this series, we're going to pray a prayer together. And today's prayer is a prayer of thanksgiving. We have so much to give thanks for. But the primary thing we have to give thanks for is that Jesus Christ gave himself for us on the cross so that we can know that God's grace is far greater than our capacity to sin. The word's going to come up on the screen now, and I'd encourage you to to pray along with me. Gracious God, our Heavenly Father, we humbly thank you for all your gifts so freely given, for life and health and safety, for work and rest and friendship, and for the wonder of creation. We thank you for preserving throughout history a people for yourself. Above all, we praise you for our Saviour, Jesus Christ, for his death and resurrection, for your life-giving spirit, and the hope of sharing in your glory. Fill our hearts with all joy and peace in believing, Through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen.